When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a short history of Florida's sea serpent sightings. The next time they see the monster tracks, it's in the next town over, a little town called Indian Rocks. And they had thousands of people show up to look for these sea monster footprints. And suddenly people are going, wait a minute. These people need to buy gas to get home. They need to buy lunch. All right, this is, maybe this isn't such a bad thing. People are starting to finally discover my strange planet shop, and they are loving the gear. The Mayan calendar design seems to be very popular right now, and it's beautiful if I do say so myself. Rick Forgus from Atomic Werewolf Studios in Phoenix has done an absolutely amazing job with all of the designs. The Nazca Lines design is also fantastic, but I think my favorite right now is the Time to Redefine Reality t-shirt. But there's so much more than tees. There's mugs and leggings and tote bags and sweatshirts and hoodies and new designs and products arriving every week. You've got to check it out. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the Strange Planet Shop button at the bottom of the page. Strangeplanet.ca. It's a strange planet. Grab the gear. Take the journey. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. David Godsword is standing by in Florida to discuss sea serpents and other legends. But before I get to that conversation, just a reminder that I'm hosting Coast to Coast AM this coming Saturday and Sunday, March the 7th and 8th. David Godsword will be joining me on Coast as well. Now, to find an affiliate station near you that carries the program, go to coasttocoastam.com, then go to Media in the menu, and then click on Local Stations. Hope you can tune in. And if you like this podcast, I think you'll also enjoy my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show, which airs every Sunday night at 11 p.m. Eastern on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM in Toronto. You can stream it live at zoomerradio.ca and on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. All right, here with a short history of Florida's sea monster sightings is David Godsword. David is the author of numerous books on nonfiction topics. His most recent books include The Westford Knight and Henry Sinclair and Adventurous Liberation, H.P. Lovecraft in Florida. His most recent book is Sun, Sand, and Sea Serpents. He can occasionally be seen on episodes of the Travel Channel shows Mysteries at the Museum and Monumental Mysteries. David Godsword, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I am fine, and thank you for having me. It's always a treat. Sun, Sand, and Sea Serpents. It's available. Uh, it's available very soon on a pre-order, I guess. Tell us uh, when, where, how we get it. Well... 
Of course, being the author, I know next to nothing about what goes on behind the scenes. In fact, I equate writing a book to making sausage. The less you know about the production, the more you enjoy the final product. <laughs> but, I, but I am told by a reliable source that it is coming out for pre-order on Amazon Saturday. And it will be available very soon after that. In fact, I believe my author's copies are being mailed the same time. Excellent. Now, before we delve into uh, globsters and lake monsters and sea serpents, I want to hearken back to a conversation I heard recently uh, between you and my, my good friend and colleague, Mark Eddy. And uh, this has a Canadian connection because you were talking about uh, the late uh, psychology professor, Michael Persinger, up at Laurentian University, mm -hmm. uh, not too far from where I'm sitting here in Ontario. And it had to do with, well, the background here was context and frames of reference, and you were citing Persinger's theory of a tectonic strain and how that relates to, uh, let's say, uh, luminous phenomena, perhaps UFOs, uh, uh, ghost lights, these sorts of things. Talk to me about Persinger. Persinger was a uh, behavioral neuroscientist, and again, uh, your neighborhood college there. Uh, his tectonic strain theory was not specifically addressed for archaeology, but I find it to be very useful myself, uh, especially when you're working with a site like America Stonehenge in Salem, New Hampshire, which is sitting on the middle of a giant tectonic spider web of old faults. But his theory basically was that mystical or religious experiences are created within the brain's temporal lobe, um, the amygdaloid, the hippocampus, and it's being triggered by a magnetic spike in the immediate area of an earthquake. Now, his theory basically says that, this, that there is a spike in this field and your brain, being a computer, is scrambled a little bit in the amygdaloid in the hippocampus. And he is uh, arguing that the sense of self in relationship to concepts like time and space is controlled by that section of your brain. So when there are random synaptic firings in that part of the brain, your brain desperately tries to make sense out of it. And depending on when and where you are and your personal frame of reference, what it calculates this event that didn't happen, but it's got all these synapses to account for, you may have a religious experience. A God has spoken to you. You have been visited by an angel. Um, 5,000 years ago, you're walking along, and all of a sudden there's a, a minor earthquake, and suddenly the voice of God comes in and converses with you, or an angel appears in the sky. You've had a religious experience. If it happens once, it's a personal. If it happens more than once, it gets a rep that area will get a reputation as a holy site or a mysterious site. And that's where you see all the old temples, particularly in Greece and Rome. They are built near fault vines. So there's a more frequent number of, quote-unquote, godly appearances. Now, because that is the part of your brain that also affects your sense of self, there is absolutely no question in your mind that this is a true event that took place. Now, the effect is, is basically caused by what he calls a temporal lobe transient. Um, I think it's easier to say it's a micro-seizure. Um, the more intense this seizure or TLT is, the more likely it's going to be divine guidance, um, messages from God, um, a change in your level of religiosity. Less severe displays would be deja vu, uh, recurring dreams, memory blanks, and distortions in the series of events, or 
precognition, if you will. What's causing this TLT or microseizure is a transient geophysical field. I love talking to big words. It's a very brief, very localized change in the electromagnetic field. And it's, again, this tectonic stress in the Earth's crust. Now, where it gets interesting, and he was trying to use it to explain UFOs, is that certain crystals in the, the Earth produce electric voltage when they're under pressure. Like quartz. Like quartz, which is one of the most common rocks. And, of course, up at America Stonehenge, we have veins of it running through the fault line. In fact, there's one spot you can stand, and the vein of quartz has shifted an inch in one direction from the other side of the line. Now, when the quartz is compressed, it releases what is called piezoelectric discharge, um, earthquake lights. Now, by itself, that's just cool. I've seen earthquake lights up there. It basically looks like somebody's fired a flare gun at tree level, but you don't hear the soot, that you know that whizzing sound you get with a um, that whizzing sound you get with a flare that's fired. Right. It's basically a silent light glowing passing quickly through the trees and 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 these so, lights this phenomena can precede actual seismic activity by months yes because it's the pressure building up but now let's put that into the context of the micro seizures if you will your brain has just had a mega dose of electromagnetic you're trying to make heads or tails out of what your brain is, says it's seen, even though the other parts of your brain are going, what, did we miss something? You saw a bright light. Next thing you know, you're talking to God. That's an angel. There's a bright light. You have a sense of otherworldliness. That's a UFO. And depending on how severe it is, that could also explain some of the UFO abductions. They did or did not take place. But you are convinced it took place because of the way it's your brain has interacted with this electromagnetic energy. Now, again, this isn't designed to explain everything. I'm, I'm not brave enough to say that every single UFO or everything, every angel is a side effect of geology. But it, it, it does have some interesting relevance because an awful lot of these UFOs are sighted near seismic locations. Right. Now, that would be fascinating to to plot these UFO sightings uh, and, and, and see if there is that correlation between yeah. uh, fault lines and, and um, uh, quartz, uh, quartz-bearing quartz rock and so forth. Has anyone attempted to do that? Would you take that project on? No, no, no. Thank you, no. Uh, it, it's too big of a project for me. I just don't have the technology access down here. I would need all sorts of the seismic activity globe-wide, and then UFO, I suppose I could get from MUFON or a similar group, but um, the math is not my strength, so I'm not sure I should be doing any sort of statistical analysis. Sounds but like a great... Persing Persinger did it mm -hmm. to a degree, but he was specifically looking to match them up, so whether or not he did sites that had earthquakes and sites that had UFOs that were not related to each other in any way, shape, or form and just threw out the data. So we, we don't know how wide his sampling was. This uh, luminous phenomena, um, does it, would it also include things like ball lightning? Does that relate to tectonic strain? Because someone sent me a video, actually it was posted to YouTube, and it was this luminous orb floating across a railroad track uh, it was actually quite remarkable to see. And I've, I've heard of ball lightning, but I don't know exactly what it is. Is it related? Yes and no. I mean, they're, they're both luminous phenomena. Ball lightning sort of is self-explanatory. It is an electrical discharge that has built up and it's self-contained with probably producing a little plasma. A ghost light would probably be more likely on a railroad track because of all the metal and the pressure of the trains on the metal producing the piezoelectric discharge. So I, I, they're grouped together because 
you know, well, let's face it. If you're in the middle of the woods and something big and shiny is coming at you, you're not worrying whether it's luminescent because it's electrical or luminescent because it's a ball of lightning. You're just, you know, duck and cover. And uh, the uh, the railroad tracks uh, where the ghost light or the ball lightning is is witnessed, would that also correspond to quartz bearing rock? Is that an important ingredient as well? Not necessarily. Um, there's a reason why we make wire out of metal, because the charge can carry for long distance. So technically, you could have a train 100 miles away that is climbing up a hill, and it's got this heavy contact with the rails, and it's straining, and it's pushing, and it's slipping, and it's building up this charge, almost like St. Elmo's fire. And then it just travels along the track until something triggers it to go up and parallel the tracks. Fascinating, fascinating. So let's, um, let's move on to uh, sea serpents. Which have very little to do with earthquake lights. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm guessing that context and frames of reference uh, are also important. Um, Absolutely. So uh, I, I want to start uh, with with uh, globsters. Uh, I remember that the um, the Weekly World News, which was one of my favorite tabloids, while I was waiting in line at the uh, supermarket checkout. In fact, a, a good friend of mine uh, used to be a, a contributor there, the late great Lesky Pinson. And uh, ah, yes. Do you remember You're Lesky? Showing your age. <laughs> yes. You're showing your age. Well, next to Bat Boy, which was uh, one of the more popular uh, items on the the cover of the Weekly World News, the other one uh, had to do with these uh, globsters or blobs that would wash up on shore uh, in places like uh, New Zealand or Florida. And, uh, you know, people imagined that perhaps they were sea monsters of some sort. Talk to me about globsters. Where did that name come from, and what are they actually? Well, globster is actually a term that was coined by Ivan Sanderson, the zoology slash cryptozoology fellow who was very popular in this country in the 60s and 70s. He died in the 70s. But he basically used it as a, a catch-all phrase. He originally used it in 1960 to report for a creature in New Zealand. But as soon as he realized that that term just was really, really cool to say out loud, uh, he applied it retroactively to any historical event of an unknown mass. And that's the key word there. A globster is a mass of organic material that washes up on the shore. And it's not a carcass because a carcass has skeletal features and or body parts that you can identify what it was originally. A globster is by definition an unidentified mass of organic material, or at least it was at the time of Ivan Sanderson. It, we've gotten pretty good at recognizing what they are nowadays. Perhaps one of the more famous uh, was the St. Augustine monster uh, around 1897, I think. Talk to me the about that, please. The St. Augustine's giant octopus. I I love that one. It's it is just. I, I don't have favorites. All of my books are my children, and all of my children have their own little fun sections. This guy, this guy's my favorite. 1896, Anastasia Island, which is the island that protects St. Augustine from the wonderful world of ocean. Um, Intracoastal, we call them down here, which is just a polite way to say barrier island. But they are literally minding their own business, two kids, out after a hurricane, a couple of good days, they've been cleaning up, so they grab their bikes, and um, St. Augustine is right next to Daytona. And if you, you don't know the, the Florida topography, Daytona is such a hard-packed sand beach that they can drive cars onto it. And Anastasia Island is the same way. So they were taking their bicycles out to ride on the beach, and they come across something rather large and unhealthy-looking and probably dead. Well, at least let's hope it's dead. And they assumed it was a whale because whales tended to wash up 
in that area and had done so the summer before. And this is actually kind of exciting to them because the local historical society was desperate to get a whale skull for the collection. And they had not been able to salvage it from the previous whale washing ashore. So they went running down to talk to the head of the historical society. He says, you know what, guys, it's Sunday night. I got churching to do. We'll deal with it tomorrow. He, tomorrow becomes Tuesday, Tuesday becomes Wednesday. By the time he gets out there, the local hotel guy had fenced it off and was charging admission to see it. And that got the historical fellow, DeWitt Webb, a little huffy. They were threatening to go into court over what it was. But in the meantime, Webb is trying to figure out what it was by writing to everybody and anybody. He writes to the Smithsonian. He writes to this doctor. He writes to that. And they never quite figured out what it was. But it's basically a 22-foot-long, 8 feet thick, at least 6 inches, uh, six, 6 inches, 6 feet wide, um, the, they never quite got what the tonnage was because it was just too big. They were trying to pull it up the shore to get it away from the tidal pole so it wouldn't wash back out to sea, and they could not move it. So we're talking multiple tons. Think of a giant bag of jello, and you're trying to pull it by a rope. Yum. Yeah, but Webb looked at it and didn't recognize it. It had no skeleton left. It had no skin, no muscle. It was just a big mass, i.e. what would become known as a glob. He decided it must be an octopus and that the tentacles had been eaten off. Maybe sharks, maybe by the water. And that's the start of it. It it stays there for a couple of weeks. It is unpleasant pink. Uh, In the sun, it was slowly turning into a silvery gray. It was not a healthy-looking item either way. It was so tough and rubbery, they could not cut samples of it. People were trying to take souvenirs, and the pocket knife simply would not cut through this stuff. So he decided it had to be an octopus. He got some people up in National Natural History Museum to say, maybe... But the problem they had was the guy with the hotel was doing all the press and getting all the news, and DeWeb, uh, DeWitt Webb wasn't having any luck getting anyone to help him. Um, he was working with the Smithsonian on catching fish, but he was not a botanist. He was not a biologist. He was a doctor who ran a wholesale pharmacy company. So he doesn't have the background for this. And they basically initially took at it and they finally got hold of the fellow named Verrell or Verrell. I've never figured out how to pronounce his name. And he is one of the biggest names in science at that time. And he's the fellow who first started classifying giant squid. So to him, well, yeah, it could be a, could be an octopus, but he's only working from pictures Eventually, he changes his mind and starts to back away from this thing. Webb is trying to cut samples to send to the Smithsonian, but he doesn't have formalin, or as we know it, formaldehyde, because at that point, formaldehyde wasn't made in the country. It was shipped in from Germany, and the Smithsonian only bought enough to preserve their brain collection because it was insanely (laughs) expensive. There's a joke there, but I'm not going there. Um, (laughs) Thank you, yes. Sometimes they're just too easy. So even as he's trying to get samples out to the Smithsonian, the Smithsonian and the Natural History Museum in New York are backing away from him because Verrill is saying, I don't know what it is, but it ain't no octopus. And eventually the whole thing collapses under itself. Um, You have a fellow named Frederick Lucas, who is a Smithsonian naturalist who had actually just spent a couple of months up in Newfoundland at a whaling station studying, quote-unquote, whale anatomy. And there's a famous quote he made. The substance looks like blubber. 
and it smells like blubber, and it is blubber. Nothing more, nothing less. Aha. Uh-huh. And um, that was pretty much the end of it, as far as they were concerned. Um, once everybody started walking away from it, uh, Webb just ran out of money, and nobody was interested anymore because it wasn't a giant octopus. It was just a globster, quote-unquote. So it was just unceremoniously buried in spot. And that was the end of it, or so we all thought. It was still well-known locally for years and years and after that. But back in 1950s, we've, so we're leaping forward 60 years, there was a fellow who was appointed head at Marineland. Now that is an old Florida tourist attraction. It was originally built to be a film studio underwater for making nature films. In fact, they filmed uh, The Creature Walks Among Us from The Creature of the Black Lagoon there. Ah. Uh, If you see, uh, or is it the second movie? I lose track. Second movie, The the Revenge of the Creature, Return of the Creature, whatever they call it. Um, If you know the movie, obviously better than I do, um, he is in that tank that was the main filming tank and there is actually he is chained to an anchor at the bottom to keep him from getting out of the tank that anchor is still at Marineland the tank is gone but the anchor is still there but he was hired to be the curator and he was specifically there because he knew the Caribbean fish and what they discovered pretty soon is that there wasn't much of a market for an underwater film studio, but it was huge as a tourist attraction. So his job was to make sure there were lots of pretty fish for the tourists. So he's going through the clipping files one day, and he sees this odd little newspaper clipping about the giant octopus that had washed ashore and how Professor Verrill of Yale University had examined it and said it weighed over six tons. Well, none of that is true. Verrill walked away from this thing so fast you could hear the vacuum. But there was no context to it. And the only thing he knew is that Verrill was a big name in oversized cephalopods. So he's going, well, I've got to figure this out, because if it was on St. Augustine, that means it was on the beach at Anastasia Island. Well, Marineland is on the beach at Anastasia Island, about eight miles or so from where they found the octopus. So this is sort of an ongoing thing with him. And he got started working. I need, it gets complicated if I'm not careful here. Not that it isn't already. <laughs> That's right. We're Wood following along working, with flowcharts here. Uh, well, I think you have to sometimes. <laughs> um, it's an occupational risk. Wood was working with a toxicologist, what we call him today. At that time, I'm not sure he had a specific name. But he was interested in how venin, venom killed animals. So he would inject the thyroid gland of these creatures and have them bite something and then monitor the transition of the poison through the body. And he wanted to work with octopuses. So when you needed animals, you went to Marineland, which was sort of a side dish for them. So they got buddy-buddy, and they start working on this giant octopus to kill some time, and they discover that Webb actually had sent samples to the Smithsonian. And more importantly, the Smithsonian didn't consider it giant octopus. They considered it whale because that was the final decision by Verrill. It was scrap pieces of a whale. And so they were able to get samples of it, and from there on in, from the 1950s into the 60s into the 70s, this thing is an ongoing battle. Well, the, the tissue examination is inconclusive. The DNA is unavailable because, one, DNA wasn't being tested yet, and two, because it had been sitting in a concoction of formaldehyde, salt water, alcohol, and water. So there, there wasn't a lot of cellular stability left at this point. But they 
made the mistake or tactic, excuse me, tactical error, that's better, of trying to publish their work, could not get it published. Um, Dr. Gennaro was now an associate professor up in New York University and was asked by Natural History to write an article about giant octopus because Loch Ness Monster. Of course, it's the same practical thing, right? <laughs> I love it when they conflate. Um, half of my book is, guess what? Loch Ness Monster got popular again, so this happened and this happened. It's a tremendous catalyst for everything else in cryptozoology, at least as far as sea serpents are concerned. So the old art paper that they had written, they modified it for a more general audience, and then they published it in the March 1971 issue. Uh, three, three different pieces. One was Wood's history of the discovery. Second one was Gennaro's um, histological analysis. And the third was Wood's notes on Bahamian scoots, which were the folklore version of giant octopus. The problem was it had more of a whimsical tone to it than the magazine normally ran, and it turned up in most people's mailboxes on April 1st. Mm-hmm. So, so that was the end of that particular one. That, from there on in, it sort of gets complicated, like it hasn't already. <laughs> More of my conversation with David Godsword when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I want to welcome a brand new sponsor to Conspiracy Unlimited, and I couldn't be more proud to be associated with the good people at Hero Soap. It's owned by veterans, and their products are outstanding. Their soaps contain no chemicals, dyes, or fragrances, and they come in these really cool resealable packages. So you can take your soap with you on the road instead of using those gross hotel soaps or take it camping. I'm using the Peppermint Cool Soap, and the moment I started lathering up, I felt a cool, refreshing, and tingly wave wash over me. I felt more clean, more refreshed, more alive. And not only does my body feel refreshed, I feel good on the inside, knowing that the Hero Soap Company supports veterans. Sign up for the hassle-free monthly auto ship, and you'll never run out of quality natural soap again, and you'll save 10%. Plus, for every soap purchased through the subscription, one soap is sent to deployed troops around the world for free. If you want to get clean and feel refreshed and support veterans all at the same time, check out Hero Soap at HeroSoapCompany.com. HeroSoapCompany.com. Look for the banner ad at strangeplanet.ca slash conspiracy show and in the episode notes for this podcast. Hero Soap. Let freedom clean. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. David Godsword, the author of Sun, Sand, and Sea Serpents, is here. Where are we at with the St. Augustine monster? Is it still undetermined? Uh, or what about for you personally? Are you leaning whale blubber, giant octopus? 
oh, I, I hate being put on the spot. I let, historian says I don't have to make a decision. But in this case, um, they were able to find other masses that identical to it. Uh, most recently, uh, Los Muelmos, Chile, uh, 2003. They, they tested it. They were able to pull out pieces of the Bermuda blobs, uh, a couple of found other ones scattered around. They found one in Nantucket. There were some on Tasmania. And they did a microscopic analysis, and they did DNA of these fresh ones that had been sick, sitting in uh, formaldehyde, and there's no question it is whale. Whale uh, specifically, blubber. Whale blubber. Not even just whale blubber, whale cartilage. Blubber, blubber, blubber is good eaten. Uh, cartilage is the part nobody will eat. And what they now think the St. Augustine monster was, well, there's always a few hardcore holdouts, but that it is the spermacetti tank of a sperm whale, which is a collagen sac that sits behind the head, and it holds up to 500 gallons of waxy liquid, which is what the whale hunters were after. So now they're thinking, basically, somebody butchered a whale at sea, got their uh, spermacetti, and then dumped the rest of the remains. The collagen floats, it catches the wave, it, everything else decays away, gets eaten away, and this thing comes ashore. And yeah, it's a giant empty sack. It kind of does look like an octopus, except, of course, it isn't. Fantastic. I mean, to me, the prosaic explanation is often, for me, as fascinating as the alternative. Yes, and that's kind of how I approach the book. I, I do not like debunking things just for the sake of debunking things. I can name people who'd like that. But, but if it's not an octopus, I'm not going to call it an octopus either. And that one just keeps showing up on the cable networks and in, in the newest cryptozoology books. And it's because people aren't doing the research. They're, they're looking at the, you know, 30-year-old documentation, whatever books were best-selling at that time. Right, right. So and, an, un- had, an know, unintended hoax, can we call it that? Yes. So from there, let's, 18, late 1890s, let's move ahead a half century, still in uh, Florida, this time in Clearwater, and uh, we, uh, have, we have the three-toed uh, prints along the beach. Someone has uh, basically decided it's a giant penguin. Tell me about the, th- the, the three-toed... You're you enjoying that one way too much. <laughs> the Clearwater three-toe. The Clearwater three-toe. Um, basically, uh, it starts in 1948, and it goes on for a while. Um, somebody made an anonymous phone call to the police in Clearwater, said some large sea monster had frightened his girlfriend while they were sitting on the beach. Police logged the call, didn't do anything. Two days later, beachgoers are going out for the morning walk on the beach, and there are these three-toed footprints, 14 inches wide, 15 inches long, very deep and the police immediately assumed it was a fraud or a hoax a joke practical joke let's go with practical joke that's such a polite term and the Clearwater Sun the newspaper there also thought it was a prank and the Clearwater Sun in particular they fought this thing for the entire length of the Clearwater three-toe um the previous summer had been a really bad year for Clearwater. There had been a major outbreak of red tide, and it took out most of the sponge fishing up in Tarpon Springs. It took out all the beach activities. Hotels were being closed. Schools had to be closed because of the fumes. And they didn't need a sea monster to scare off the tourists this year. But then it gets complicated because... How fun would it be if it didn't? <laughs> um, snowbirds, my favorite term in the world living down here, start reporting they saw something in the water. Now, if you look at the report of, uh, let's use a specific one, Snowbird uh, from Illinois, he saw something in the grass flats out in the water, shallow water, and 
whatever it is, he says it's hideous looking something or other. But what he's describing is a manatee, which go into those grass flats because that's, that's some good eating for a manatee. Mm-hmm. But you live in Illinois. You don't know what these silly things look like. All you see is this big mass floating on the surface, occasionally going under. It's got flippers. It's coming up for air. It's a monster. And that's, that's where it suddenly started becoming more than just a hoax. People are saying... Um, other newspapers pick it up. Um, in fact, there's an inside joke that it's a dinosaur. Because, um, do you remember the comic strip Alley Oop? Oh, yes. Yes. Alley Oop's illustrator was a fellow named V.T. Hamlin, a second or third in the line. He was a snowbird who lived in Clearwater. Aha. Uh-huh. So, so they're talking dinosaurs, they're talking alcohol abuse, all sorts of answers <laughs> to what was going on. The perfect storm. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they, it just keeps happening two or three more times, and it gets more and more insane. Um, one guy is saying a saltwater crocodile had come north. Well, they're about 200 miles north of where crocodiles are comfortable. Um and the Chamber of Commerce and the Clearwater Sun are sitting there going, it ain't a sea monster, it's going to kill us this year. And then the opposite happened. The St. Petersburg Time is having a field day with the story, and it's bringing people into town. And the next time they see the monster tracks, it's in the next town over, a little town called Indian Rocks. And they had thousands of people show up to look for these sea monster footprints and suddenly people are going wait a minute these people need to buy gas to get home they need to buy lunch all right this is maybe this isn't such a bad thing the problem i have with that particular one the indian rock sighting is that the person who called it in was a fellow named john moore who claimed it had chased him. Now, the cops immediately know that this is a prank at that point because John Moore was the name of a ghost that walks up and down Indian Rocks Beach. Mm. So the cops all know this is a joke. The newspaper's trying to keep it from becoming a panic. Meanwhile, word is spreading outside of the area, and it's bringing the tourists in. The cops knew who did it. They knew there was one guy in town who was famous for the pranks he did. So they knew who it was, but they couldn't catch him doing it, so they couldn't prove it. And it was getting out of control. And what happens is you start seeing little patterns. The fellow they think is the prankster is a fellow named Al Williams who ran a mechanical garage in town who happened to have the contract for the police station. So if there was a squad car in the shop, he knew they were shorthanded that night. (laughs) And guess what you'd get on the beach? More footprints. And it just, there were other, people started getting in on it. Uh, There was a butcher in town who said that there were hundreds of footprints out on one of the islands. He's telling this, of course, to the tourists. But then you get somebody who owns a flying school in town who's out flying and they see something out in the water. It passes over it five or six times at 500 feet because that's, that's legal max minimum in that area. And they say it described as the shape of an old log, 10, 15 feet, moves in a sideways description, covered in black fur, a hog-like head, flippers. It's a manatee they're describing. Now, the problem is the people who were on this plane were not snowbirds. They were all longtime residents. They know a manatee when they see it. But one is the owner of a restaurant. One owns the flying school. One is an out-of-work sponge diver starting to work as a pilot for hire. And the other guy works for a repair shop at the airport. These are all people using tourist-driven industries, right, right. and they just happen to be the, the four witnesses. Who, who floated the idea that it was a giant penguin? That brings us to our favorite cryptozoologist in the world, Ivan Sanderson, again. Now, Ivan 
did not ever go to Clearwater, but there was a second set of footlet, uh, footlets, footprints, second set of footprints on the Suwannee River, which is up the coast a little bit. And these had been made in a freshwater environment. And it just so happens that the owner of the property was a fellow named Max Cheney, Marx Cheney, Marx Cheney, who was a tourist person. He owned a, uh, a jungle walk through the woods. He owned the hotel. He owned the curio shop. He owned the restaurant. He didn't have anything to do with the footprints, but by God, somebody drops an opportunity like this into your lap of a marketing campaign, boom, you're going to run with it. NBC sent Ivan Sanderson down to investigate. Uh, Ivan Sanderson, at that point, 1948, was becoming a well-known naturalist. He had done a couple of books on real animals. He was appearing on WNBC, the New York station, doing... Um, the the Jack Hanna routine. Oh yes. If you're of a, if you you know who Jack Hanna is, you sure. know what he, he he'd bring a ring-tailed up. lemur and it would sit on Johnny Carson's head and uh, exactly. everyone would laugh. Yes. Ivan Sanderson started the bring animals to TV thing, so they come down here and I don't nobody knows what Ivan Sanderson personally thought, but he went with that it was a hoax initially, and then. Five years later, he's got a book out, and it's some sort of a three-toed creature. And then, all of a sudden, out of the blue, he decides it is a penguin. A giant penguin. Yeah, it could still be a dinosaur, two-legged, you know, a two-foot bipedal dinosaur. But he's thinking giant penguin. And the reason he's doing that is because he's looking at all these reports that are starting to come in now, because he's the cryptozoology go-to guy, and there's these Antarctic reports of a short-necked sea monster with staring eyes and a head like a camel. And he thinks that there was an undiscovered colony of giant penguins somewhere in the Antarctic. And this was some sort of a, a rogue who had wandered away from the pack. Now, the problem is, the giant penguins have existed. There is a fossil record. They get as high as six feet tall, which is nothing to sniff at. But he's describing a 12-foot tall giant penguin. And I'm still not convinced he's not doing it just to sell books. I can't imagine somebody with a background in biology like Ivan Sanderson would would believe that there's such a thing as a 12-foot penguin now or ever well I guess at that time a six-foot penguin might get you into the newspaper but a 12-foot penguin would get you on with Jack Parr and it would also sell your next book indeed indeed but in the meantime, the guy, Al Williams, uh, over in Clearwater, every so often they would put the shoes on and make new tracks. His partner was a fellow named Tony Signorini, who, who actually only died a couple years back. Tony's father ran an iron industry out in Pittsburgh before they moved to Florida. He kept a foundry in his backyard for old time's sake. Because, you know, that's what you do. <laughs> and they had cast iron footprints made three toes they strapped them to the bottom of a sneaker bolted them in place and they would put these things on and walk along the beach and they didn't do it very often because well frankly it was open secret by this point that it was them the only people being fooled were the newcomers you know the tourists and apparently occasionally a cryptozoologist or two <laughs> but in 1953 arthur clark is in clear water learning about scuba diving, and even he says that he was shown the shoes. So even the tourists were in on the joke sometimes. Sounds but like still, a wonderful cottage industry they have going. Uh, well, it wasn't bringing anybody in anymore, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't hurting anybody, but, but by 67, you know, Sanderson has completely embraced his giant penguin theory. Uh, Fate magazine, the whole routine. And it just, he died, Al Williams died uh, right before 
Ivan Sanderson did. And uh, Tony Signorini, his partner, was just too busy running the business to really play with it. But then in 1988, his daughter lived in a nearby town, who had a next-door neighbor who was a reporter for the St. Petersburg Times. They talked him into admitting it, and they he pulled out the shoes. And they are 30 pounds apiece, cast iron, on a pair of what we would today call high-top basketball sneakers. And Signorini admitted it. He, he explained some of the stuff. He um, pretty much destroyed people in cryptozoology. Um, everybody said, well, that's the end of that. But there's still, even today, there's still a few people who are convinced that it's a real object, either, whether it's a dinosaur or a giant penguin. But they say that the guy who did the hoax is actually hoaxing us now to cover up the fact that there's a giant penguin in Florida. <laughs> of course, of course. Because, Sun you know, why not? Sun, sand, and sea serpents. And that is, uh, well, you can pre-order it uh, in just a day or two. Uh, Amazon Prime, Dave Godsword. Uh, before I let you go, we just have a few moments here. Uh, I'm just wondering, you know, if you, if you sort of categorize... Um, lake monsters and sea monsters under you know you've got the you've got the the giant killer octopus we've talked about you have the uh, the monster fish and then you've got let's call them nessies uh, up here in uh, in uh, in lake erie we have a bessie of course uh lake champagne uh, lake champlain uh champy uh any any nessie type creatures down in florida well, first of all, you forgot my personal favorite, which was the Gloucester Sea Monster. Ah, yes. Or if, or if you pronounce it correctly, the Gloucester Sea Monster. Yeah, he's wicked smart. Wicked smart and real <laughs> sneaky. One of my favorites. Um, if, if this book does well, we are going to continue up the East Coast. So I'll be able to do the New England and the Maritimes next. Uh, I, I group them slightly differently than everybody else. There are a couple of categories out there. Uh, uh, Bernard Heidelman tried to categorize them, and then uh, Lauren Coleman and Patrick Hughes tried to, a new system. I think, that, I think it's overcomplicating things. Um, I separate things by jurisdiction. So I you know, see monsters in the Gulf of Mexico. A lot of them sound like serpentine. And... If you get rid of and I'm, this, I'm going to get in trouble for this, I'm sure. But if you get rid of all the living fossils, the um, the megalodon reports, the um, the basking sharks that rot away and become looking like a plesiosaur, all of that stuff, you get rid of the the lake monsters that are, for the most part, in Florida, either fraud or alligator gar because the lakes down here are too shallow. Um, you you end up with a classification that I'm just going to call the sea serpent, the archetype. 50 to 100 feet long, dark colored, possibly a light underside, moves with a serpentine motion, can go underwater very quickly, appears to be either a, um, a breeding colony or a, a social animal. You see a lot of, rep you see a lot of them in the Atlantic. Um, particularly between the mouth of the St. John's River up to, uh, well, Altamaha, which has its own reports of sea serpents. But that seems to be a really heavy area for this particular one. But if you chart the entire East Coast, go down to Brazil, follow it up into Central America, Florida, Gulf, Caribbean, up the coast, all the way into Massachusetts and the Maritimes, it seems to be... Almost the same creature they're describing, a 50 to 100 feet dark-colored serpent. Now, this is, this is a bit of a problem because um, warm water critters don't hang out in the cold water and vice versa. So we're talking about something very odd. Now, either I'm misinterpreting the data, which is certainly a possibility, um, or there is a type of a 
sea life that is 50 to 100 feet long, moves like a snake, looks like a snake, and does not care what temperature the water is, which means it's not a reptile. Warm-blooded? I don't know. Amphibian? Possibly. Maybe a fish. Um, giant eel? That could be a possibility. Uh, eels do go from freshwater to saltwater. They, they breed in freshwater. They live in saltwater. And there is a section of Florida coast that is very swampy that has an entire body of serpent reports that are on land, which could be going from salt to freshwater through the swamps. So there's, it, it's preliminary, at least based on my data, and I have not charted this out yet, but it sure looks like it's a consistent pattern all the way up and down the coast. So is it, that may be answering your question, or it well, could just be a maybe. <laughs> well, do you, do you talk about Tarpy and the Muck Monster? I talk about the muck monster. Uh, of course, that's Lake Worth, where, which is practically my backyard, especially during rainy season. Uh, tarpy, I do talk about. Um, I am not a big fan of tarpy. Um, I, they're, they're, like I said, all the lakes, particularly in Florida, but in the south, are either very shallow or man-made. Um, if I remember correctly, tarpon which would be tarpy, but it's, uh, not, I don't, it helps when you have your book in front of you. I should try it. Um, <laughs> is not that a man-made lake for a reservoir? Lake Tarpon? I believe so. I believe so. Because there's, there's an alternate theory that it's not a sea serpent or a sea monster of some sort. A cryptid is the term we should be using. But rather the fact that this is a self-contained body of water that has an ecosystem without apex predators so things get bigger because there's nothing to stop them from getting bigger hmm. um, there's also a, a lake uh, Lake Norman is definitely a reservoir um, I, I travel out of Florida there so I, I'm, oh, I'm that's trying in, to make it oh that's North Carolina Lake Norman yeah 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 Lake Norman has got a lot of sightings and every sighting that I have seen is describing something that sounds like an alligator gar. It has an alligator-like head, it is fast, it is aggressive, it is a fish. So it's not, it's not acting like an alligator, but you see one coming at you at a top speed, you will pay attention. <laughs> well, everyone should pay attention that uh, sun, sand, and sea serpents available on pre-order Amazon.prime uh, in just uh, uh, days really. So we have that to look forward to. And hopefully I have more conversations with uh, Dave Godsworth to look forward to. I've really enjoyed this, Dave. I hope we can talk again real soon. Well, I, far be it for me to plug future projects, but I have a new book on the Westford night up in Massachusetts due out in March or April. Ah. So yeah, I, I think we could squeeze you in. <laughs> All right. It's a date. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back on the other side with a few words on an upcoming episode. Have you ordered your bottle of Carbon 60 yet? The mighty Aphrodite and I have been taking a tablespoon of this miracle molecule suspended in olive oil for a few months now. We're taking the purest form of C60. It's called ESS60, and it's produced by our friends at C60Evo.com. C60 in oil is a powerful antioxidant that moves through the body like a magnet to attract and neutralize free radicals. It can slow down aging and reduce cellular damage. C60 can improve the immune system and reduce inflammation naturally. Often we hear about improved vision and substantially keener mental focus. The mighty Aphrodite and I are sleeping much better. We're both pain-free, no joint stiffness or back pain. And that's why I call Carbon 60 the miracle molecule. It's great for us humans and it's great for our pets. To order, go to c60evo.com. That's c60evo.com slash ref slash rs1. Again, to order your bottle of ESS60, go to c60evo.com slash ref 
RS-1. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, The Shroud of Turin, Near-Death Experiences and Consciousness. The pattern of the stain and the serum tells a story that can be read by a, a forensic pathologist looking at the cloth. And it's been discovered that this cloth once wrapped the recently deceased body of a man who had been tortured. He had been whipped by two assailants and he had had a cap of sharp objects placed upon his head, such as thorns may have been, for example, and he had been crucified. He'd been crucified through the feet and also, interestingly, through the wrists. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 